Uh, it's nice to be here with you today. I'm old enough now that I, I, I have trouble remembering a lot of things that happened in my uh, childhood. But there are still a few things from my youth that I remember. And uh, I remember one Sunday morning, I was probably 16 years old at the time, and uh, at our church, this is back in middle America actually, we, we began singing this uh, gospel song written by J. Wilbur Chapman called One Day. Any of you old enough to remember that? You old enough, Sam? I don't know, maybe not. So the, so the first verse, something like, One day when heaven was filled with its praises, one day when sin was as dark as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. At which point, our, our pastor dashed to the, the pulpit, stopped the singing, and said, I want, I want to make it clear that we're not liberals who believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and Jesus' example and all that, all that stuff. Jesus is God. And I, I was 16 years old, but I was already, you know, I was an embryonic theologian. <laughs> so I, in my mind, I, I said, well, obviously he's more than our example, but that doesn't mean he isn't our example. I mean, already the critical juices were flowing. And that was, that was one of my early encounters with the reality that solid, conservative, evangelical Christians often have a hard time affirming the reality of what we recall in the Advent Christmas season, and that is that the eternal Logos, the Word of God, the Son of God, became human, that he really did take on whatever was required to be fully human. As one of my theology profs decades ago said, it was undiminished deity joined to perfect humanity forever. And yet, my experience is that in many ways, we, we have trouble coming to terms with the reality of his full and genuine humanity. It's Christmas time, so at some point in the Christmas season, if you haven't already done it, you probably sing Away in a Manger. And so we sing the second stanza. Um, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Really? Now, I, okay, before you go on the attack, I know it's poetry. I understand there's some poetic license. I get all that. And, and some of you may want to speak to me afterwards and say, look, on that particular day, he did not cry. <laughs> you, you may want to make that point. Okay, I get that. But I, I think it, it points to something. We, we, have, we have a tendency to think he was just God in the body. Not, not really human. So, so now I've ruined Christmas for you. 
okay? I'll never forget. I, I actually made that comment in a sermon at, at our church in Toronto where we were members back in, I think it was 1988, Richview Baptist Church, and I made that comment. Five years later, when we moved from Toronto to Kitchener, when Heritage College and Seminary began, people were still talking about it, about how I had ruined Christmas. If you let me come back for Easter, I can ruin that too. Um, but, but we'll see. We'll see about that. Um, so that, I mean, that's an older song, but I think of, a, of another contemporary worship song. Um, the Lion and the Lamb. Do you sing that here? You know that one? Okay. So part of the words are, our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah, and our, our God is the Lamb who was slain. Now there's nothing false about what those words affirm because Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, is in fact divine, God the Son. But the problem with it is that he can only be the Lion of Judah, he can only be a Jew by virtue of his humanity. And he can only be the Lamb who was slain, he can only die by virtue of being human. So when we sing it as our God is the Lion of Judah, our God is the Lamb who was slain, we're, we're, we're saying something that's true, but we're getting the wrong part of the point. Okay, I've ruined enough for you today. Um, but all of that is simply to say that I, I think it's true that very often the way believers think about the person of Christ is that somehow he was... God in a body. And, and that's all we need to say. That the word became flesh simply means the Son of God took on a human body. But that's not the fullness of biblical teaching. And in this season, we rightly celebrate with special intensity the reality of the incarnation. That he really did become one of us apart from sin. And so I want to show you that today. I invite your attention to the Epistle of the Hebrews, and we start in chapter 2 at verse 10. Okay, I, I, I knew I sent a PowerPoint. I wasn't sure if it really showed up or not. Now I know. So Hebrews 2. Now here's, here's the intriguing thing. Hebrews chapter 1 is, is perhaps the most concentrated witness to the divinity of Christ that we find in the New Testament. But that's not our topic for today. But right on the heels of, of one kind of evidence after another for his genuine divinity in chapter 1, the writer speaks of him in a way that provides probably the most concentrated evidence for the full and genuine humanity of Christ. So, I start reading at chapter 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, 
should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then the the writer develops this a bit further in terms of Jesus as the pioneer of our salvation. And then over in chapter 4, verse 14, we read this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says, in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I think in a whole variety of ways, the writer makes the point. But there are are several obvious questions generated by that that people understandably ask. Uh, The first question 
would be the person who says, look, didn't he just look as if he were human? Wasn't it just that he took on a human body and therefore he looked to be human and, and, and that's the point, God in a body? The answer here is no. The, the Son of God became a real human, really one of us. It wasn't just manifestation in a physical body. So in other parts of the New Testament, we find things like explicitly called a man. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter says to the Jews, he was a man authenticated to you by signs and wonders. In 1 Timothy 2, when Paul talks about the current uh, ministry of Christ as our intercessor, he says our intercessor is the man, Christ Jesus. And in this text, notice verses 11 and 12, we are called... Brothers and sisters. One of the biblical ways of describing the relationship between the Lord Jesus and us who believe in him is that he is our elder brother. Now, that's not the, that's not the way we instinctively think of it, but that's one of the ways Scripture describes his relationship to us. Down over in 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters. He's, he's really one of us. And in, in the gospel's picture of the life of Jesus, we see there that, that he, though he was son of God, was also fully human, and that was manifested in the fact that, that he struggled in certain ways to do the will of God. Think of his agony in the garden the night before he died. When he he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, he does does say in that same prayer, nevertheless, let your will be done. So it was never that he decided, I am not going to do the will of the Father, But the process of obeying was for him in that time agonizing. And when we look at what the Gospels tell us about the life of Jesus, we also see that he was dependent on the Holy Spirit, dependent on the Father for many realities that if he weren't human, he he wouldn't be dependent for. For example, Mark 13 tells us that just a few days before his death, when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and, and his coming in glory and answering the disciples' questions about it, he says, of that day and hour, the coming in glory, only the Father knows it. The angels don't know it nor does the Son know it. So at that point, almost at the end of his life on earth, functionally, he was not omniscient. He said, not even I know the day and hour of my return. I'm sure that's not the reality now, but it was then. 
And, and we also see when, when the way the New Testament describes, even the way, the way he describes his own miracle working, is not simply, I'm God in a body, so obviously I can do miracles. In Matthew 12, 28, he says, if I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is in Cornelius' house speaking the truth about the gospel, he says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and he went around doing the miracles because God was with him. So even his miracle working is ascribed to the power of the Spirit working through the man Jesus. Now, I understand why, why you would say, well, wait a minute, how does this make any sense? I mean, if he, really, if he really retained his divinity, then how can you talk about something like not being functionally omniscient, not knowing something? Well, that's a good question, and although I've been teaching theology for a long time, there's some questions to which we have to say, well, the answer is not neat and tidy and obvious. Maybe it would be something like this, thinking of the knowledge piece. You and I know a lot of things, but we know them on multiple levels. And, and sometimes there are things we know deep down inside that we, that we don't know in the moment. We don't remember and I hate to say that the older I get, the more things there are in that second category. Things that I don't immediately know. Uh, for example, I knew I was coming here today. I, I knew that, um, okay, I mean, I, there would be some people here, no doubt, who, were, who have been students of mine. Jake. Sarah. So I, I, for some reason, Sarah came to mind, except she didn't come to mind in terms of name. I thought, ah, this is, there's this woman who was a student of mine. She's a member at Crestwick. She's an engineer. I, 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 I know her really well. What's her name? <laughs> and I thought, this is going to be dreadfully embarrassing if I walk in the building and I see Sarah and I say, hey there whoever you may be. It came to me, though, uh, after a while. So if you asked me at one moment in time, did I know Sarah's name, I, I, I would have had to say, uh, no, not really. I did know it deep down inside. It was buried deep in the hard drive, and I was trying to find the right button to push, the right key to bring that up on screen. Finally, somehow, it happened. So we know things on various levels. Somehow, in the Son of God's experience as the God-man living on earth in his period of humiliation, we know from the biblical text, functionally, he didn't know everything all the time. He's a real man. He is really human. Uh, second question 
people would raise is, yeah, but okay, but he was perfect from the beginning, right? And the answer to that is morally, yes, he never sinned. So morally, he was perfect from the beginning. But he did develop as a human person. And that's, that we see in a variety of ways. We, we know precious little, really, from the biblical text about the childhood of Jesus. Basically, what we know, we know from Luke chapter 2. And at the end of that chapter, Luke says that, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with human beings. He grew in wisdom and stature. He grew physically in that human body, in stature, but he also grew in wisdom. He learned things along the way. Now, in that same chapter, in the preceding verses, we have that story about Mary and Joseph and Jesus at at the temple when he was 12 years old, and he was obviously precocious, Obviously, he learned things very rapidly and early on, but he, he grew in wisdom. He learned things as he developed. And in a fascinating way, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus, by God's work in him, in his experience, brought him to perfection, to completion. So, chapter 2, verse 10 It talks about how God would make the pioneer of our salvation perfect, complete through the things that he suffered. And then over in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus grew as a human being not only physically, but he, but he grew in terms of his inner human reality and was brought to completion. Now remember, he, he didn't have to be transformed morally. He was morally perfect. And yet he had to grow and develop in his humanity. And he, and he learned those things, the writer says, through the things he suffered. He grew through suffering. We sometimes just use the phrase, no pain, no gain. Normally, we're talking about the physical exercise that all of us need, and some of us get, some of us don't. But we recognize you don't don't get that benefit without some stretching of yourself, without some pain along the way. We also know from experience that, that we learn a lot of things. We, we develop part of who we are spiritually and emotionally by, by suffering in this fallen world and, and experiencing what is involved in dealing with that. Every um, late October, my wife and I go out for dinner to celebrate another year post-breast cancer. 
And so at the end of October this past year, that was 28 years. I, I, I'm sure I, I developed a lot in the way of empathy and compassion and various other things. I, I still have a long way to go. If you want the facts, talk to my wife afterwards. She can help you understand that. I still have a long way to go, but I'm sure I developed in many ways through, through that experience of vicarious suffering. Jesus suffered and Jesus developed. The Father was developing the Son. And, and having brought that physical life obediently to, the, to its goal, he became the source of our salvation when he offered that perfectly obedient life in his death for us. That's pretty important. All right, a third thing people will say in response to the whole idea is, well, well, he was, he was unique, obviously. So, I mean, does he really understand what it's like for us? Does he understand the challenge we have in trying to be godly, trying to be obedient in this world, given our experience of this world and the people in it? And the answer is, he really does understand because he really suffered the kind of trials and testings that we do. At 2.18, the writer makes the point, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then, of course, over in chapter 4, verse 15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Now, when we talk about Jesus being tempted, we aren't saying that at at various points Jesus said, oh, I really want to do that evil thing. But we are saying that that he experienced the challenge of the test and he experienced the reality that saying yes to the Father's will meant going against opportunities that were there in his life. He was tested in all the ways that we are, the writer says. And therefore... He can help us to persevere in our faith and obedience. He was rejected by the masses. There were times when large crowds adored him and at the end, instigated by religious leaders, the crowd said, crucify him. He suffered totally unfair, unjust criticism. So if you experience it, remember you have the high priest in heaven, the man Jesus, who experienced it. His friends were sometimes unfaithful to him. And 
in a way we can't fully comprehend, his hopes were shattered sometimes because I think of that, that episode that we're told about in the Gospels in which he, near the end, looks over Jerusalem and, and, and laments, saying, oh, if you only had known the time when I visited you. Instead, you're going to suffer the destruction of the temple and the city because of your unbelief. And so, and so we see Jesus saying, I came, I, I taught, I did the works, I called you to believe in me. I came to my own people, but my own people have rejected me. So he understands. And therefore, the writer will say there in chapter 4, 16, that we can approach God's throne with confidence. Understanding that God's throne is a throne of grace and we receive mercy and the grace that we need to help us as we seek to persevere in faith and obedience. He really does understand. The one who makes our case in heaven, our high priest, really does understand. If, if you and I seek out a counselor to help us, we, we probably want, in most cases, someone who, who can really understand the kind of things we're talking about. For example, if, if, um, if you go to see someone for counseling and help with, with your marriage, probably... You, you, you would think, ideally, I'd like a counselor who's married. If, if the counselor has never been married and has no firsthand experience of what marital life is all about, I, I may always wonder about the quality of the counsel. But if you found such a counselor and the counselor said, do I understand marital life? I sure do. Been married and divorced four times. Now I'm, now I'm married a fifth time. Boy, do I understand. You probably would say, um, can I have my money back? person would understand, but you wouldn't have any, any reason to believe the person had significant answers to your questions. And so Jesus, the God-man, understands the temptations, the tests, the, the challenge of obedience to the will of God our Father. He understands all that. So when we approach him, we approach God through him, our high priest, we, we come through one who really does understand, but he's the one who's been tempted in every way without sin. He knows the answer to the questions. He knows the right path to obedience. Now the fourth, final, final question somebody may well ask is, well, okay, we can accept the fact of his humanity, but isn't his divinity what really, really counts? It obviously counts. We don't, we don't worship him 
well, we ought not worship him if he's not divine. So it definitely counts that he is God the Son. But frankly, it, it was only as a human being that he could save us in the way he did. So the writer makes the point here, chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. In chapter 5, there's text we read, the writer develops that in greater detail. In God's economy, a priest who represents human beings has to be a human being. He is taken from among his fellow humans to represent us, to be our mediator. So he had to, he had to be human, he had to be one of us to be a priest, to offer a sacrifice for human sin. And so in 2.17, he became that faithful high priest that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus was not only the priest who offered the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice itself. What he offered was not the blood of bulls and goats and calves. What he offered was his own blood, his own life. So you see, the point is, if, if he weren't one of us, he could not represent us as priests and he could not represent us as the appropriate sacrifice. The right sacrifice for human sin is a human life. In Romans 5, the way Paul puts it is, the human race was ruined by the one act of disobedience by the one man, Adam. But we're redeemed from all of that, Paul says, by the one act of obedience of the one man, Christ. If he weren't genuinely human, he couldn't be the representative, substitutionary sacrifice for our human sin. That's how important it is that Jesus is really human. Now, in, in our time and place, in our day, most of the errors about the person of Christ that we encounter are errors that deny his divinity. So we do need to focus on that crucial truth, obviously. The Jehovah's Witnesses who may come to your door, we have to encounter them with that truth that Jesus is fully divine. Liberal theology and modern theology has typically deserted the idea of the divinity of Christ. We have to defend the divinity of Christ. But interestingly, in, in the history of the early church, the earliest, apparently the earliest heresy about the person of Christ was one that we call docetism, which was a denial of his genuine humanity. And then a few centuries later, a teacher named Apollinarius 
said he was just God in a body. And so he denied the fullness of his humanity. So from the early times of the church, one of the errors has been a denial of the genuine humanity of Jesus the Messiah. And we need to defend that, and we need to affirm that. Because, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, if he wasn't really human, then he doesn't qualify as a priest to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin. If he didn't become genuinely human, then you and I don't have an atoning sacrifice to plead, and we are lost in our sins. That's how important it is to affirm the reality of the humanity of Jesus the Messiah. He really is human, and that's really important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you did not simply declare your will and command us to obey it. You did that, but we failed. And so we're grateful that the Son of God was willing to humble himself and become one of us, that he might give his perfectly obedient life in sacrifice for our sins. Lord, if any here today have never trusted in him and found peace with God through believing in the one who came to die for our sins, by your Spirit, draw them to trust in Christ today. Increase in all of us our, our wonder as we contemplate the greatness of the Incarnation that the Son of God became one of us, that we might become the children of God. For that great truth, we give you praise through Jesus our Lord. Amen.